A few years ago, we went over to Kentucky Lake, and we took a boat over to where the cliffs are. And the boys went up on the cliffs, maybe 30, 35 feet, and began to jump off and dive off and flip off. And kept saying, come on, Dad. After a while, I decided to go. And I climbed up the cliff, and when I got my toes on the edge of that cliff, the boat looked about that big. Now, jumping off that cliff didn't look so bad from the boat, but it looked really bad from up there. And you know, it took me about a half hour to talk myself into getting airborne. And I jumped one time. And when I was back in the boat, I was thinking, you know, if I could jump off that cliff while watching from the boat, it wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't be so bad if I had a new perspective on this. Well, Peter is writing this letter to people who feel like they're standing on the edge of a cliff. They are suffering. They are undergoing persecution. They are experiencing all kinds of difficulties. And from their perspective, things are very bleak. And so Peter writes to give them and us a new perspective. And the basis of our new perspective is our salvation. And that's the theme in the verses we want to look at this morning. Verse 3 talks about us being born again. He talks about salvation in verse 5, in verse 9, in verse 10. Because we are saved, we have a new perspective on the future, verses 3 to 5. We have a new perspective on the present, verses 6 to 9. And we have a new perspective on the past, verses 10 to 12. First of all, a new perspective on the future in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 talks about a living hope. Verse 4 talks about an inheritance. Verse 5 talks about a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a new perspective on the future. And notice how he begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins with a doxology of praise. And this word blessed is only used of God in the New Testament. He's talking about the praise that only He deserves. He is to be praised. He is to be blessed. Why? Well, He tells us in verse 3, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. God is to be blessed because we have been born again. And notice who is responsible. It says God caused us to be born again. God brought about our new birth. You see, salvation is not man's work. It's God's work. In John chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth is a miracle that God brings about. And you can't take any more credit in your spiritual birth than you could in your natural birth. In fact, we can't even fully grasp it. 
In John chapter 3 and verse 8, Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, we experience a lot of wind in southeast Missouri. Recently, we had a big wind at our house and blew some of the shingles off and blew the neighbor's trampoline into our house. Now, I heard that wind, and I saw the results of that wind, but I don't understand how it works, and I couldn't anticipate it, and I certainly couldn't control it. And the same is true with regard to the new birth. The Spirit comes and does what He wishes, and we see the results, but we don't understand it. And what is it that He does? What are the results? He causes us to be born again. Did you ever start a job and get about halfway through and wish you could start over? Did you ever begin to paint a room and you get about halfway through and you think, I should have picked another color? Did you ever start your life and get about halfway through and think, I'd like to start over? Well, God offers something even better than that. God doesn't say, I'll give you a new leaf. God says, I'll give you a new life. And it's not the same old life. It's eternal life. It's God's life. And why did God do that? It says, according to His great mercy. Now I want you to notice something in this verse. He doesn't say it's according to His great taste. You see, God didn't look down and say, let me see who I can find that's really attractive. Let me look before, beneath the surface and see who is really a special person. No. It's not based on God's great taste. In fact, Romans chapter 5 says that when Jesus died, we were helpless, ungodly enemies. We were not attractive to God. In fact, we were rebelling against God. You know what's even further enlightening? Among that mass of despicable humanity, God didn't even select the so-called cream of the crop. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us we are the foolish, the weak, the base, and the despised. That's who God has called. Do you ever imagine what it would be like to be born into a royal family? All the perks, all the privileges... Well, you are born into the royal of all royal families. The creator of the universe has chosen you and caused you to be born again into his family. And the only reason is because of his great mercy. And that's why we bless him. And that's why we have a new perspective on the future. He says in verse 3, we have been born again to a living hope. As we, as Christians, look at the future, we have 
hope. Now when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about a wishy, iffy, cross my fingers kind of hope. You probably heard the ancient story about the king who sentenced a man to death and the, the man begged for a reprieve and he said, if, if you'll give me one year of life, I'll teach your horse how to fly. And so the king agreed. And the man began working with the king's horse to teach it to fly. And people were very curious about this. And so they came by and they began to ask the man, why did you decide to do that? And he said, well, at least I've got a year. And in the course of that year, the king may die. This horse may die. I may die. Or who knows? This horse just might fly. Now that's pretty thin hope. That's not the kind of hope that Peter is talking about here. The word hope in Scripture means a confident expectation. And it's something that only believers have. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 says unbelievers don't have any hope. Unbelievers have no confidence in the future. They have no promises about tomorrow. And some are honest enough to admit it. Bugs Bunny said, don't take life too seriously. You'll never get out alive. Ashley Brilliant said, my life has a superb cast, but I can't figure out the plot. Woody Allen said, more than in, at any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other leads to total distinction. Let us pray that we choose correctly. Lily Tomlin said, I can handle reality in small doses, but as a lifestyle, it's much too confining. Why? Because the reality is, there's no hope. And by the way, apart from Christ, that is the logical philosophy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 32, Paul said, If we don't have the hope of rising from the dead, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But we do have hope. Proverbs 4.18 says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. We have a hope that gets brighter and brighter every day. In fact, in our passage, Peter calls it a living hope. Now, why is it living? Look at the end of verse 3. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Our hope is just as alive as Jesus is. Now, Peter knew something about hope. When Peter first started following the Lord Jesus, he was anticipating an earthly kingdom. He thought Jesus was going to overthrow Rome and sit on a throne in Jerusalem. That's why the disciples were constantly arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. That's why when Jesus said, I'm going to die, what did Peter do? He took him apart and rebuked him because Peter was looking for an earthly kingdom. And then Christ was arrested Peter denied him, Jesus was crucified, and Jesus was buried, and Peter's hopes were dashed. His hopes 
went into the grave with Jesus. And for three days, Peter was hopeless until Christ rose from the dead. And after the resurrection, Peter got a living hope that totally eclipsed the previous hope that he had had. Now, was Peter's hope based on the fact that his life was going to be hunky-dory? No. In fact, after Jesus rose from the dead in John chapter 21, He came to Peter in verses 18 and 19, and He told Peter that Peter was going to die as a martyr. Now, how would you like to live your whole life knowing how you were going to die? And knowing that you were not going to die on your deathbed with your family gathered around, you were going to be taken and crucified, executed by cruel hands. Peter lived his life knowing that was his fate, and he lived with a living hope. How could he do that? Well, because his hope was no longer in a present earthly kingdom. His hope was, as he says in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. Now, who gets an inheritance? Children do. And verse 3 says, we have been born again. So we are now the children of God and we get an inheritance. Now when I think of inheritance, I think of a closet full of 40 long suits. What is it that we are going to inherit as God's children? Well, there are two ways to look at that. One is that Jesus said in Matthew 19.29 that we will inherit everlasting life. Now that's something we already possess, eternal life, but we will inherit and experience it in its fullness one day. And then there's a second way to look at this. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, it says that we are joint heirs with Christ. If you are a believer, you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever He inherits, we inherit. And what is He going to inherit? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says He is the heir of all things. We are joint heirs with Christ. Whatever He inherits, we inherit. And He is going to inherit all things. Pretty exciting. And then notice what Peter says about our inheritance in verse 4. It's imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away. It's imperishable. That word means it can't be destroyed. It's permanent. Peter uses this word later in this same chapter in verse 23 of the Word of God, which tells me our inheritance is as indestructible as the Word of God. And then it's undefiled. That is, it's pure. It can't spoil like overripe fruit. By the time I get my earthly inheritance, those suits will be out of style. That's not going to happen with our heavenly inheritance. And then thirdly, he says, it will not fade away. That's a phrase that means it will never lose its luster. It will never fade in color or brilliance. Everything on earth fades. You buy a new car and it doesn't take very long until it begins to look a little old. You buy a new computer and you're real excited about it and it doesn't take very long until it's obsolete. 
You buy new clothes and you wash them a few times and they kind of change shape and you change shape and they aren't as exciting as they used to be. On Christmas morning, you wake up and you open the gifts and they're exciting for a little while and then they become old hat. Well, Peter says it's not that way with our inheritance in heaven. It will never lose its luster. It will be ever fresh. It will be always Christmas morning. You say, well, how do I know that I'm going to get it? How can I be sure that I'm going to receive that inheritance? Well, notice what it says at the end of verse 4. It's reserved in heaven for you. I'm planning a trip to Orange County, California in May, and I already know where I'm staying because I have a reservation at a hotel there. And when I get to the counter, I'll say, I'm Dan Green, and they'll say, yes, we're expecting you. We've got a reservation. Let's see, you'll be staying with us for six nights. Would you like to pay for that on your credit card? Yes, I would. Well, enjoy your stay. You see, when I leave this earth, I'm going to be transported to heaven. And I'm going to say, I'm Dan Green. And they'll say, yes, we're expecting you. We've got a reservation. Let's see, you'll be staying with us forever. And we don't need your credit card because it's already paid in full. Enjoy eternity. You say, well, what if that hotel in California loses your reservation or happens to cancel your reservation? Well, that could happen because people make mistakes. But I like what it says in verse 4 because our inheritance is not reserved on earth. It's reserved where? In heaven. And there are no mistakes there. You see, I may lose my job, I may lose my house, I may lose my health, but there's one thing I will never lose, and that is my ticket to heaven. It's reserved there. And if that isn't enough, he goes on to say in verse 5, who are protected or kept by the power of God. Not only is our inheritance kept for us in heaven, but we are being kept on earth for it. And that word kept or protected is a military word. It means to place a garrison around to guard. And what is it that is guarding me so that I'll get to my inheritance? It's the power of God. Now that phrase reminds me of something. It reminds me that not only can I not save myself, I cannot keep myself saved. God not only provides His power to make me a believer, He uses His power to keep me a believer. It's all God's power. And how does He guard us? How is His power manifest? Look at verse 5 again. You are protected by the power of God through faith. See, God doesn't have to send lightning bolts down from heaven to destroy your enemies. God manifests His power by working through you and me. He energizes the faith within us to keep us trusting Him. I have been walking with God for over 25 years. 
That amazes me to say that. And there's sometimes when I just stop and I sit down and I think, how did I ever get this far? And this verse has the answer. God is keeping me by His power. And how long are we kept? Look at verse 5 again. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept all the way up until our salvation is complete. Now in Scripture, salvation is talked about in three tenses. It's talked about in the past tense. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. It's talked about in the present tense. We are being saved from the power of sin. And it's talked about in the future sense. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. And Peter here is talking about that future tense aspect of salvation. When we get our glorified bodies. When we are totally free from sin. When we are present with the Lord. And so we have a new perspective on the future. We have a living hope in a living Savior who will bring us our inheritance and our complete salvation. And then secondly, we have a new perspective on the present in verses 6 to 9. Verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In the salvation He's been talking about in verses 3 to 5. In this you greatly rejoice. How else could we respond? Christians should be the most joyful people on earth. But notice, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. We are to rejoice even when we're going through trials. In fact, if you look in verse 6, there's a word used there at the end that says you are distressed. By various trials. That word distressed means to be grieved. Christians are to rejoice even when they're undergoing trials that bring them grief. Christians are to cry happy because we have living hope. You say, well, that's easy for you to say. You're not going through the difficult times I am right now. Well, I want you to notice in verse 6 what Peter says about trials. Notice the word various. We talked about it last week. It's a word that means multicolored. Trials come in all different shapes and sizes. And then notice the phrase, for a little while. How long do trials last? For a short time. In fact, even if you suffer through a trial for your whole lifetime. That's brief in contrast with eternity. And then notice another phrase in verse 6. It says, if necessary. God only allows trials in your life if they're necessary. Which tells me that trials are provided and allowed for a purpose. They're not accidents. You say, well, what's the purpose of a trial? Look at verse 7. That, or in order that, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials test our faith. They test our faith to prove it genuine. They test our faith to purify us. And they test our faith to produce those things that glorify the Lord. And Peter gives us an illustration here. It's the illustration of a goldsmith. And in the first century, when they wanted to purify gold, they took that gold and they put it in a crucible and they put it over a fire. And as the gold melted, the gold was heavier and so it went to the bottom of the crucible and what rose to the top was dross, waste. And the goldsmith would wipe the top crust off of that and throw it away. And as a result of going into the fire, that gold was purified. And Peter says it's the same way with your faith. Your faith is like the gold. Trials are like the fire. When you go into the fiery trials, the dross ought to come to the top so that it can be removed so that you can become purified. And the way the goldsmith could tell if the gold was fully pure was when he could see his reflection in the gold. God allows trials when necessary in our life to purify us, and what He wants to see reflected in us is His image. So how should we look at present difficulties? We shouldn't say it's an accident. We shouldn't say I'm having bad luck. We shouldn't say everything's going against me. No, God is allowing those things in your life to purify you and glorify Him. And then what is it that proven faith produces? Well, first of all, it produces love. Notice verse 8. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. We have never seen the Lord, but we love Him more than mother, father, brother, sister, wife, husband. That's an amazing thing. You know, for 20 years of my life, I didn't commit my life to Jesus Christ. And I, and I watched my dad, and the one thing that was evident about my dad is that he loved the Lord. And that was always confusing to me. How could he love somebody who he couldn't see? And I didn't understand that until I committed my life to the Lord. And I realized that you can love someone you haven't seen but you can't love someone you don't know. And how do we best get to know the Lord? Well, it's often through the trials of our lives. And then the second thing that proven faith produces is trust. Notice verse 8 again. And though you do not see Him now, but you believe in Him. Now, most people live by the adage, seeing is believing. That's especially true in Missouri. In fact, I've had people tell me, if I could just see Him, I would believe. But you know, that's not really accurate because when you read the Gospels, you'll find there were a lot of people who saw Jesus who didn't believe in Jesus. Seeing is not necessarily going to increase believing. In fact, seeing and believing are really polar opposites. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by what? Not by sight. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 describes faith as the conviction of things not seen. 
You see, sight doesn't increase faith. You know what increases faith? Trials. Trials purify, prove, develop my faith. Abraham had greater faith in the provision of God after he offered his son on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had greater faith in the presence of God after they went through the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. Paul had greater faith in the sufficiency of God's grace when he experienced the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Third thing that proven faith produces is joy. The end of verse 8. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What kind of joy comes out of faith that is proven by trials? He says it's inexpressible. You can't even put it into words. It's like the peace that passes understanding. And then he says it's full of glory, or literally it's glorified joy. Heavenly happiness. And that's what undergirds a Christian even through times of tears. And then the fourth thing he mentions that proven faith produces is hope in verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Charles Spurgeon used to say, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. And that's hope. And it's developed in our lives by proven faith. And then the end of that faith, the outcome of that faith, he says, is our completed salvation. And so we have a new perspective on the present. We understand that trials are sometimes necessary to prove our faith genuine, to purify our lives, to produce those things that glorify God. And because of faith, even though we don't see the Lord right now, we love Him, we believe in Him, we greatly rejoice in what He's done, and we hope in what He's going to do. And then the third thing we see in this passage is a new perspective on the past in verses 10 to 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now these verses point out several things to me. One is they tell us about the producer of prophecy. Who is the author of prophecy? What's very interesting in this verse is it tells us that the prophets spoke, the prophets wrote down the prophecy, and then when they got done writing down the prophecy, they scratched their head and said, I wonder what we just wrote. They wrote the prophecy and then they said, I wonder who we're talking about. And I wonder when this is going to happen. Now, if the prophets didn't understand what they were prophesying about, then who's the real author behind the prophecies? Well, he tells us in verse 11, it's the, it was the Spirit within them producing that. And so we see the producer of prophecy. Second, we see the person of prophecy. Look at verse 11. It says, The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets of the Old Testament predicting the sufferings of Christ. 
Does that sound right? The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets writing all the details about what would happen in the life of Christ before He was even born. Now, if Jesus could do that, what's that tell you about Him? Same thing He told the Jews in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. The person of prophecy is the eternal God. And then thirdly, we see the perplexity of prophecy. What was the real issue that the prophets couldn't understand? The end of verse 11. The sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. I was out in Colorado earlier this year, and and when you stand back from the mountains and you look, you just see a lot of mountain peaks, and you really can't distinguish the difference between those mountain peaks. And that's kind of the way it was for the prophets in the Old Testament because there were two major mountain peaks. There was Mount Calvary, which describes the suffering of Christ. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Mount Calvary. And then there was Mount, the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 describes how when Jesus comes back in glory, He's going to land on the Mount of Olives and split it wide open. And so there was Mount Calvary about His sufferings. There was Mount, the Mount of Olives about His glory. The problem was the prophets were standing way over here. And they were looking and they were seeing these two mountain peaks. And they couldn't tell the difference between the two. You know where we are today? We're standing right between those two mountain peaks. We're in the church, which is described in Ephesians chapter 3 as a mystery in the Old Testament. And we have the great perspective to be able to look back at the sufferings of Christ and understand them and look forward in anticipation to the glory of Christ. What a privileged place we stand in. What the prophets couldn't understand, what the prophets were puzzled about, we have a perspective to see and understand. And then the fourth thing I want you to see here, and the final thing is the purpose of prophecy. And that's in verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, did you catch that? The prophets wrote, the prophets were told that they were writing to serve you. Or as he puts it in verse 10, they wrote of the grace that would come to you. So all that was written in the Old Testament was written with you and I in mind. It was written to serve us. Can you believe that? Well, obviously the angels couldn't. I, I, he says, talks here about the angels longing to look into that. I mean, they're curiously standing around going, what is going on here? Why would God become a man and suffer and die for them? And I'm sure the angels spend most of their time scratching their heavenly heads about why God would bring His grace to you and me. I like the way Peterson puts it in the message. He, he says, to quote this verse, do you realize how fortunate you are Angels would have, been, would have given anything to be in on this. 
What a perspective on the past. It was all designed to serve us. It was all designed to bring grace to us. We are in a privileged position today. We have a perspective that the prophets never had. We have a perspective that the angels don't have. We've got the perspective that salvation brings. It brings us a new perspective on the future, a living hope to an inheritance and a complete salvation. It brings us a new perspective on the present. Our trials are purifying us and glorifying God. And it gives us a new perspective on the past. It was all done to serve us in finding grace. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're suffering. Maybe you feel like you're standing on the edge of a cliff. Peter says, come to understand your salvation and you'll get a new perspective. Maybe there's somebody here today and we've talked about hope, we've talked about the new birth, we've talked about salvation, and you realize that that's something you've never experienced. You're still outside of Christ. You still have to admit that you really have no hope. Well, I want to invite you this morning to come to the person that all prophecy is written by and written about, Jesus Christ. And the one who can give you a living hope today in an eternal future. I'm going to ask the praise group to come and sing. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to come. Whatever your need, you come and we want to deal with it. We want to help you with it today. There may be some here who would like to join this congregation this morning. You come as they sing as well. I'm also going to ask April to come who was baptized this morning as we sing together. You come as the chorus group leads us. Let's stand as we sing.